0: Ha <laughs> Редактор субтитров
1: We would like to welcome you to another edition of The Jazz Show on CITR FM 101.9 or on your computer, www.citr.ca. And of course, we would uh, like to tell you what we're going to play this evening. My name's Gavin Walker, and we're here every Monday night with some of the very best in jazz music. And tonight, Of course, we always head off with our jazz feature, which uh, I'll talk about in a moment. And after the jazz feature, we're going to do a lengthy tribute because it's uh, July 10th today. July 10th is the birthday of one of the most significant voices of the trumpet. And one of the most amazing and precocious musicians ever to grace the planet. And I'm talking about Edward Lee Morgan. Lee Morgan. Lee Morgan was born July 10, 1938, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and died at the age of 34 from a bullet. He was shot to death in a nightclub during performance by his uh, estranged wife, Very sad ending to this brilliant musician who truly, people talk about Lee Morgan today and how much he defined um, modern trumpet playing and, of course, his influence. uh, He had his influences, but um, his influence has grown over the years. And uh, people have come to admire Lee Morgan, I think, even more now than when he was alive during his brief time in the the limelight. Anyway, we'll be playing a lot of Lee Morgan after the jazz feature this evening, so you can be sure you're going to hear some amazing music. And um, these are all dates that I'm going to be playing by Lee Morgan that are under his name. He made many, many sideman appearances. Uh, He was with um, a couple of significant bands like Dizzy Gillespie's Big Band Um, and, of course, Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers a couple of times. He had a couple of stints uh, in that band and, of course, uh, was on some classic recordings. But we're going to hear recordings by Lee Morgan, led by bands that he put together. So that's going to follow up the jazz feature. Now we're going to get to the jazz feature. And the jazz feature tonight is one of my favorite saxophone players of all time. And he was also Charles Mingus' favorite saxophone player. I'm talking about Booker Irvin, who was born Halloween night, October 31st, in Denison, Texas in 1930. Booker had a short life. Um, He died in 1970. He was uh, 39. Died of a kidney um, ailment sad to say, and this great gentleman was basically on the jazz scene for 10 years. And he first appeared with Charles Mingus. Uh, He was hired by Mingus at the tail end of 1958. And, of course, after he joined Mingus and became part of that uh, many, many... um, of those incredible versions of Mingus's jazz workshop, Booker Irvin um, began recording under his own name as well for Savoy Records, for Bethlehem Records, for Candid Records, and eventually for Prestige Records. And we're going to do on the jazz feature this evening his first album that he did for Prestige Records, and it's an album called Exultation. Now, Booker had been on the scene for a few years. He'd already established his reputation. His sound on the tenor saxophone is instantly identifiable. A lot of people said, well, it's kind of like a a Coltrane-like sound. No, it wasn't. It was Booker Irvin's sound. It was really his sound, and that was one of the things that distinguished him um, and and, uh, created his individuality. But not only that, his concept, he had a great blues-based concept of the tenor saxophone. He didn't play complex uh, lines on the horn, but he delivered with that sound, and his, his, his lines actually were very, very original, and he had a very original way of phrasing as well. And Booker Irvin could play the blues. Oh, damn, he really could. Now, this album I think um, they had several rehearsals before recording this, unlike a lot of albums for Prestige, uh, which are just kind of um, spontaneously put together and whatever happens, happens. But uh, I think Booker um, realized that signing with Prestige Records was kind of important for his career, and it was, Uh, and uh, he decided to um, put this band together and rehearse before they went into the studio, because it certainly sounds like an organized band, not not a band that was just thrown together for the recording session. That's what makes this album so exceptional, but the playing, of course, is wonderful too. So Booker Irvin is the leader on tenor saxophone, but alongside of him is one of the most underrated and underappreciated masters of the alto saxophone, Memphis-born Frank Strozier. Now, Frank didn't record a lot during his career, but his uh, performance on this album is especially notable. And Booker Irvin and Frank Strozier, although they didn't do much playing together uh, except to make this album, uh, really had a mutual admiration society, and they complement each other beautifully. On piano... Is a wonderful player who Booker met in the turbulent Charles Mingus Jazz Workshop. And they became best of friends. And the piano player is Horace Parlin. And Horace um, lived the latter part of his life over in Denmark. And he just passed away not that long ago. Wonderful, wonderful piano player. Um, and he was always perfect for Booker Irvin. They loved playing together, and they actually did a lot of recording together. So Horace Parlin is on here on piano. On bass, a gentleman who was playing in Thelonious Monk's quartet at the time of this recording, which uh, took place in June of 1963. The bass player here is Butch Warren, Edward Butch Warren, very fine, solid, wonderful bass player, and on drums from Chicago, Illinois, wonderful drummer who came to New York from that town, Walter Perkins. And Walter also recorded with Charles Mingus as well, and very, very adaptable and wonderful swinging drummer, the late, great Walter Perkins. So that's the band, Booker Irvin on tenor saxophone, Frank Strozier on alto saxophone, Horace Parlin on piano, Butch Warren on bass, and Walter Perkins on drums. And the tunes are really quite wonderful on this album. Booker Irvin recorded uh, or uh, wrote three of the compositions here. And we open with um, the first one, probably the most exciting track on the album, and sets a very high level on this album. And uh, the track is called Moosh Moosh, written by Booker Irvin. M-O-O-C-H-E. You pronounce it the way you feel like it, but I say moosh, moosh. Second tune is an old standard written by Andy Razaf. Beautiful tune that was written, I guess, to commemorate the pain in some ways. It was written a long time ago in the uh, the, uh, 1920s. And I wouldn't call it a protest song, but it certainly reflects the feelings of a lot of African Americans. And the song is called Black and Blue. So that's tune number two, and it's a beautiful ballad. Then another intriguing Booker Irvin uh, instrumental follows, and it's called Tune In. And I think this is my favorite track of the album. Uh, The next tune is a standard tune, written by Betty Comden, Johnny Green. And it's a tune um, called Just in Time. And there's a, that's a nice version of that tune. And then we go to a Walter Perkins composition. Again, this is kind of a protest song that he wrote. Um, he was thinking of his uh, position in society as, uh, as an African-American and as a jazz musician. He wrote this tune and called it No Man's Land, Walter Perkins. And then the final tune of the date is um, very close to a a composition that Miles Davis made famous called Four. And this one is called More, M-O-U-R. So it's like four except spelt with an M, more. So that's the final tune of the date. And we're going to go to the music right now. Recorded on June 19th, 1963. The album, Exaltation, the artist Booker Irvin, our jazz feature album. Sit back and enjoy this one, it's a goodie. (laughs)
0: Good <laughs> job. Thank you.
1: Our jazz feature this evening, a wonderful album called Exaltation, which was issued on Prestige Records, and it was the first under his own name for Prestige that Booker Irvin recorded, the great tenor saxophonist who was heard on this album. And of course, Booker, one of the most identifiable sounds on the tenor saxophone in his um great walloping uh, sound and his uh, blues-based concept, and uh, uh, Booker Irvin was a a very intense player. I know a a very good friend of mine um, who uh, has passed away was a huge jazz fan, and Booker Irvin was one of his favorites, and he often says that Booker was so intense in his playing that uh, generally he... Uh, after listening to a Booker Irvin record, he really didn't want to listen to anybody else for a while. He had to take a rest because um, Booker Irvin was definitely um, an in-your-face tenor saxophonist. And um, he delivered a very, very strong message. And it's no wonder he was Charles Mingus's favorite tenor saxophonist. Booker Irvin, of course, had other qualities as well, that w- which endeared him to Mingus. Uh, he had a photographic musical memory, so he could remember. Uh, Mingus, of course, was always full of ideas uh, uh, all the time, always changing things in the band. And um, uh, of course, sometimes Mingus himself would forget um, what he would tell band members, but Booker Irvin would always remember (laughs) <laughs> and and, and straighten out everybody. So um, Mingus really relied on on uh, on Booker's uh, photographic memory, musical memory. Anyway, Booker was a, a wonderful person. I had a chance to uh, meet him only once. Uh, this was at the uh, when he was playing with Randy Weston's band at the Monterey Jazz Festival, and we spent uh, a good part of the day together hanging out. I. Uh, said that I was a friend of John Handy's, of course, and John Handy and Booker Irvin had worked together in uh, in Mingus's, uh, one of the most important uh, editions of Mingus J- M- Mingus's Jazz Workshop. And um, so that was my my ticket to um, get with Booker. And of course we, uh, um, as it turned out that he liked me and I liked him and we got along really well. And it was a really interesting, uh, day, one that I won't forget. And that was my only ever meeting with, uh, with, with Booker Irvin. But, uh, I was always a huge fan of his music and, um, I hope you enjoyed his music this evening on this album. This was Booker's first, as I mentioned, for Prestige Records, and it was obviously a well rehearsed, well thought out, and well planned date. And Booker chose for his uh partner on the front line one of the most underappreciated and wonderful alto saxophonists that I can ever imagine, Frank Strozier. Frank is still alive. He was born nineteen thirty seven, so he wouldn't be a, a young fella. But uh, he is still alive, and although he stopped playing in the early 80s, he got very discouraged with the music business and uh, hung up his horn. And, but he's uh, been told that he is still with us, and um, I don't think we'll ever hear his uh, sound again. But uh, um, he didn't record a lot. So anything that he did record on was very valuable. And somehow, Booker Irvin and Frank Strozier, although they were very different players, blended beautifully on this date. And, um, uh, uh, of course, um, probably as a result of uh, some uh, good rehearsals before they actually went into the recording studio. Booker chose his uh, piano player very wisely, and one of his favorite musicians and close pal, um, they had worked together. They met in Charles Mingus's uh, turbulent jazz workshop and established uh, not only a musical alliance but a friendship as well. Horace Parlin, the late, great Horace Parlin on piano. Horace uh, went on to live in Denmark for, um, I guess, about the last 20 years of his life and passed away Uh, just a few months ago, a great musician and a beautifully quiet-spoken man and an eloquent piano player. So Horace Parlin was on piano here, and the the wonderful Edward Butch Warren, who was working with Thelonious Monk at the time, was chosen on bass, and he worked hand-in-glove together with uh, Chicago-born Walter Perkins on drums, So that was the quintet. Booker Irvin, Frank Strozier on tenor and alto saxophone, uh, respectively, Horace Parlin on piano, Butch Warren on bass, Walter Perkins on drums. This was all recorded uh, June nineteenth, 1963. And the tunes, we opened with uh, Booker's uh, exciting original tune. Actually, the first, this was the... A uh, first take of the first tune, and um, so a high level was very established on that first tune. It's called Moosh Moosh, M-O-O-C-H-E. Pronounce it any way you want. The um, second tune is a great uh, ballad by Andy Razoff and Fats Waller, and uh, it's a, a beautiful and, and beautifully played tune called Black and Blue. Tune number three was a Booker Urban original, another very intriguing tune, and I think my favorite track of the whole album. It's called Tune In. And then we moved to uh, a standard written by Betty Comden, Johnny Green, um, and the tune, Just In Time. And the next tune after that was um, a Walter Perkins original entitled No Man's Land. And the final tune was the very sort of optimistic-sounding original by Booker Irvin called Moore. So that was the album. I certainly hope you enjoyed it. The album was called Exultation, and uh, as I said, it's one of Booker Irvin's very, very excellent uh, albums that he did for Prestige Records. All right, that was our jazz feature this evening, and this is The Jazz Show, and my name is Gavin Walker, and we shall return right after a couple of uh, items here. We're going to begin with a tribute to one of the great uh, musicians after these messages. We're going to be paying a tribute to the wonderful Edward Lee Morgan. Lee Morgan. So stay tuned for that. You are listening to CITR FM 101.9. On your radio dial or on your computer, www.citr.ca. People let me tell you
0: about my best friend. Become a CITR member and make some new friends.
1: Members get discounts around Commercial Drive and beyond at. Pandora's Box Rehearsal Studio, Bomber Brewing, Stormcrow Tavern, People's Co-op Bookstore, Mintage, High Life Records and Music, Bone Rattle Music Limited, JQ Clothing Limited, The Rio Theater, the Vancouver Music Gallery, North Van, and Tapestry Music Limited in White Rock.
0: What would we do without our friends? You're listening to CITR 101.9 broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional, unceded, Coast Salish territory of the Hunkaminam speaking Musqueam people.
1: Lee Morgan. You know, if I had decided to play the trumpet. And I've often said this to my musical buddies. If I had chosen the trumpet uh, rather uh, to, to play and study rather than the uh, uh, saxophone, I would have wanted to sound like Lee Morgan. He, um, I think of so many trumpet players I love. I don't think of Miles Davis as a trumpet player. Uh, I think of his sound as being almost separate from the sound of the trumpet. But when I listen to uh, uh, players like Dizzy Gillespie or, or the great Fats Navarro or some of the earlier trumpet players or um, uh, Clifford Brown, I think of the trumpet. That is a sound of the, of the, of the trumpet. Donald Byrd, another great player who I love. Uh, there's so many. Johnny Coles. Um, but Lee Morgan. Lee Morgan, Lee Morgan, what a trumpet player. He was precocious. Lee Morgan was born in Philadelphia July 10th today, which is why we're celebrating his birthday anniversary, in 1938. And he was the youngest of four kids and uh, showed uh, a real promise for music when he was just a young kid. And uh, he wanted to play the vibes. That was the instrument that apparently he first was interested in. And um, he actually uh, learned how to play the alto saxophone quite well. But on his 13th birthday, his sister, Ernestine, gave him a trumpet. And somehow he locked right into that. And by the time he was 15 years old, he was just blowing everybody away. He was, he was uh, uh, Lee Morgan, I think of uh, as being not only precocious, I think Lee Morgan had a touch of genius. Now, that, that's a word that's bandied around all the time. There's so many people, that, you know, he's a genius, she's a genius. No, I think Lee Morgan really did. Uh, I won't say that he was a genius, but he had a touch of genius. Um, his mentor and his Greatest influence was the young trumpeter Clifford Brown, who was, of course, still very much alive and recording. And of course, Clifford didn't live very long because he was killed in that tragic car crash in 1956. But at the time, Clifford rose uh, from obscurity to one of the greatest trumpet players in jazz music. And of course, he made such a huge impression on Lee Morgan. And Lee built his style around. Uh, Clifford Browns. At age 18, Lee Morgan was mentored by none other than Dizzy Gillespie. And um, Dizzy was leading a big band at the time. And Lee Morgan came into the band. He learned the discipline of playing in a a big, organized jazz band. And Dizzy gave him all kinds of solos to play, including... um, uh, the trumpet solo that Dizzy always used to take on the tune Night in Tunisia, which was Dizzy's most famous composition. Lee Morgan took the trumpet solo on that. That was a great honor for Lee. And, of course, Dizzy uh, taught Lee um, a lot of the ins and outs of jazz, how to stay away from um, drugs and booze and all all those kind of things that are that were so tempting at the time. And also, a bigger part of the jazz scene than they are today. Uh, Most young musicians today take care of their health. They know about all the pitfalls. They don't want to do that. Um, But at the time that Lee was growing up, well, (laughs) things were a little bit different. Um, After Dizzy uh, disbanded in 1958, Lee Morgan joined Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers, and, of course, became a big, big part of that band and made so many recordings with Art Blakey. But during the time he was with Dizzy and Art Blakey, uh, Lee Morgan began appearing not only as a leader uh, of his own albums but as a sideman on on so many uh, recordings, and, of course, his recorded legacy is unbelievable. Unfortunately, Lee Morgan fell into, uh, in the 60s, um, the drug addiction had started at the tail end of the 50s and really took him right down to rock bottom. And by 1962, Lee Morgan was no longer working, no longer owned anything. He was basically a street guy. He didn't even own a trumpet. Um, he was, uh, narcotics, heroin addiction had taken him right down to the bottom and uh, it took a while for him to uh make a comeback but he did uh and he, and recorded a very famous album for Blue Note Records called The Sidewinder and uh, we're going to hear that later on in the show um that particular tune cuz it's always a kick and and that became a hit and that kind of uh set Lee Morgan up again um really brought him back to light. And of course, uh, right up until his untimely death at age 33, uh, Lee Morgan became a prolific recording artist. Uh, He rejoined Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers briefly in 1964 and 1965. And after that, um, then proceeded to lead his own bands right up to uh, the time of his untimely death, February nineteenth, 1972, and on a terrible night in New York City uh, at Slug Saloon um, after a domestic dispute with his lady, um, he was shot and killed by Helen Moore, who uh, was his um, lady, his uh uh, I nobody knows whether they were really married or not, but, he, but that was his partner and um, Lee Morgan was no more. And a very sad and dramatic ending to this incredible young man who would have delivered so much more music and um, there has recently been a, a film out on Lee Morgan's life and his relationship with Helen Moore and uh, it's a most interesting film called we i called him morgan and it gives you a whole idea of what actually happened she was uh eventually she did serve some time in in uh in prison for manslaughter but she uh, eventually went back home and joined the church and uh, uh but was had become a pariah of course to the jazz community and completely cut herself off from uh, from the community. But uh, somehow everything toward the end of her life, everything kind of resolved. And she didn't mean to shoot him, <laughs> but she did sad to say and and uh, and we lost this great musician. I won't go into all the other details. There's lots of lots of stuff to talk about that story, but uh, we'll leave that up to you. The music is the most important thing. Lee Morgan's contribution to music was absolutely incredible. And what we're going to do is we're not going to play um sideman recordings that he did, including the famous Blue Train. um with John Coltrane, uh, those recording and, and, or his recordings with Art Blakey uh, and others. But we will be playing recordings by Lee Morgan that he recorded under his own name. And uh, we're going to restrict the um, the Lee Morgan tribute to that. And uh, there's such a wide variety of wonderful recordings that he did under his name. Uh, and I think you'll enjoy the music we're going to present. We're going to go back to his very first recording, recorded November 4th, 1956. Lee Morgan was 18 years old when he recorded this album for Blue Note Records called Lee Morgan Indeed, and it featured Lee Morgan on trumpet and his buddy from Philadelphia, Clarence Sharp on alto saxophone. Uh, Clarence Sharp became uh, known. He was on the periphery of the jazz scene for many years. He, he never really uh, 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 made any huge headway on the scene, but he was well-loved in, in uh, New York. He was known as C Sharp, and um, he, he did pop up on a few records, but his recorded legacy, you can sort of count them on one hand, uh, but this was one of them. And this is a a very important date because it was Lee Morgan's first. Horace Silver on piano, Wilbur Ware, the great legendary Chicago bassist, and my favorite drummer, Philly Joe Jones. We're going to hear uh, two tunes uh, from this date. The first one, uh, Lee Morgan did not record any original compositions on these early dates. Um... He, his writing comes out later on, but uh, the tunes are really intriguing. The first one was written by um, a Philadelphia buddy who wrote a few really interesting tunes, and this is one of his more interesting ones, uh, a guy named Owen Marshall. and He was a boyhood friend of Lee Morgan's and a composer, and he wrote this first tune, and it's called Gaza Strip. And, um, of course, that was a, a controversial area back in 1956. Here it is, 2017, and it's still a controversial area in the world. Anyway, that, that, that's the, this is the first tune we're going to hear. It's called Gaza Strip. The second tune was written by uh, trumpeter Donald Byrd, and uh, it's a tune I've always liked, and this is a, a really nice um, alternate take of this tune. It's called Little T. So this is from Lee Morgan's very first album, November 4th, 1956, for Blue Note Records with all the people I mentioned. And we'll start with the "Gaza strip. Here we go. Those are two tunes from Lee Morgan's very first album under his own name on Blue Note Records called Lee Morgan Indeed, and 18-year-old Lee Morgan making his debut recording debut on trumpet with his buddy from Philadelphia, Clarence Sharp, on alto saxophone, and then this great rhythm section, Horace Silver on piano. Wilbur Ware on bass and Philly Joe Jones on drums. And we heard two tunes from this date. Uh, the first one was written by a buddy of Lee Morgan's from Philadelphia, a gentleman named Owen Marshall, and he wrote the first tune called "Gazelle Strip. And the second tune was written by um, a colleague of uh, Lee Morgan's, and they would often practice together and, and so on. They became friends. Donald Byrd wrote the second tune called "Little T," and uh, that was a, a great version featured. Uh, I think Clarence Sharpe's one of his best solos on on record on alto saxophone. As I said, he's kind of he was kind of an elusive figure, only recorded very very little, and was kind of um, uh, was on the periphery of the uh, New York jazz scene for many years. He died in 1990. All right. A few days later, Lee Morgan was back in the studio with a different rhythm section and a different band and um, recording for Savoy Records. And uh, th- this album, these first two tunes were recorded on November 4th, 1956. On November 7th, Lee Morgan um, got together with uh, tenor saxophonist Hank Mobley, who, uh, and they would play together a lot over the years. And um, wonderful rhythm section, a different feel, but a great rhythm section all the same. The great Hank Jones on piano, Doug Watkins on bass, and the great New York drummer Arthur Taylor. And we're going to hear a tune by Doug Watkins. It's a, a minor key piece of music, and of course it has the word minor in the title, and it's called uh, Doug's Minor Boke. So here then, Lee Morgan, Hank Mobley, Hank Jones, Doug Watkins, and Arthur Taylor. was a tune called, written by the bassist Doug Watkins called Doug's Minor Bulk, and uh, that featured Lee Morgan on trumpet, along with Hank Mobley on tenor saxophone, Hank Jones on piano, Doug Watkins, the composer of the tune on bass, and Arthur Taylor on drums. And that was recorded uh, a few days after Lee Morgan's debut uh, recording, about three days later, on November 7th, 1956. We're going to deliver a couple more messages, and we're going to come back with um, Lee Morgan, 1960, and uh, a very different and much more mature musician. um, And also, uh, he had emerged as a very fine composer as well. So we'll tell you more about that in just a... A few moments after a couple of messages, and just a reminder that you are listening to The Jazz Show on CITR-FM 101.9, or on your computer, www.citr.ca. Before we play um, the messages for you, I'd just like to uh, mention two great websites to check out. Um... One of them, of course, is the website of the Coastal Jazz and Blues Society, the people that bring you the big jazz festival. That's a very informative website, and there's all kinds of uh, good links on that one. That's coastaljazz.ca, and then, of course, there's the other website, Vancouverjazz.com, which, of course, has got all kinds of very interesting links as well. And if you really want to find out what's going on in and around Vancouver, uh, very easy to uh, access on your iPhones or computers, or whatever, um, vancouverjazz.com or coastaljazz.ca. All right, we'll be back in just a moment. Tired of begging for rides from your friends? Bobby, I don't have time to take you to the soda shop again this week. Lugging those groceries on the bus got you in a sweat? Man, oh man, these bags of salt sure are hefty. Being on campus without a
0: car ain't easy, so check out Zipcar and get wheels when you want them. Join now to get your membership for only $20 at zipcar.ca backslash UBC.
1: LiveVan.com is Vancouver's community-driven concert calendar. New shows are added daily by the city's most active promoters, musicians, and by the driving force of the music scene, the fans. LiveVan.com's listings are different because they are integrated with profiles updated by bands and business owners as they promote upcoming events. Check out the archives to see how closely we've worked within the community to put on the shows you love. Visit LiveMusicVancouver.com for the latest independent and major label event listings. LiveVan.com, Vancouver's community-driven concert calendar. have uh, a look at the weather. Yeah. Well, it's too bad that the weather isn't cooperating in the rest of British Columbia with all those horrible and devastating fires that are going on. That's just uh, unbelievable. And this is only really the beginning of the summer. Uh, We have to keep our fingers crossed that uh, there may be some radical change up there and Something good is going to happen because so far it hasn't been very good. Anyway, the weather down here has been just fine. Uh, Tonight is um, mainly cloudy, but then it's going to clear up later on this evening with a low of 14. And we're going to open the day tomorrow with a mix of sun and cloud. And that's going to burn off, and then it's going to clear, and we're going to have a beautiful day in the afternoon with a low of 14 and a high of 22 Wednesday is a mix of sun and cloud, again, some of that morning cloud, and then, of course, it'll break out into a beautiful sunny day. 14 and 22 will be the uh, low and high, respectively. And then the rest of the week from Thursday on, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, one word, and that is sunny. And, of course, temperatures between uh, 14 and 15 and highs going up to... As much as 25. So it's going to be very, very nice. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and onward. So there you go. Back to Lee Morgan. This was, um, of course, by this time, uh, Lee, of course, had put in his apprenticeship with, uh, with Dizzy Gillespie's big band and was a member of Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers. Um, and... As a matter of fact, he hired Art Blakey to play as a sideman on this date. This uh, Lee Morgan and a bunch of musicians, Wayne Shorter was one, Frank Strozier, several musicians um, decided to sign with a label out of Chicago that was owned by African Americans. The label was VJ Records. Now they had um, they were making money with uh, with uh, R and B records, and they formed a jazz department, and and put um, uh, a great Chicago DJ named Sid McCoy um, in charge of the jazz section of VJ Records. And of course, uh, the um, the VJ catalog isn't huge, but they made some wonderful recordings, and. Um, a couple of Lee Morgan records are some of his very best work, including this one. This is one I like a lot. The album came out as uh, the title of the album was Here's Lee Morgan. And, of course, by that time he was at the top of his game and very well-known. He had become uh, one of the major trumpet players in jazz music. All of this was recorded in early February of 1960 in New York City. And the people involved here, Lee Morgan on trumpet and flugelhorn, and the great Chicago tenor saxophonist Clifford Jordan, who worked with Morgan just beautifully on this album, and a wonderful rhythm section, Wynton Kelly on piano, Paul Chambers on bass, And Lee's boss, Art Blakey, on drums in a sideman role. And one of the things on this album was that it brought out Lee Morgan as a composer as well. Three of the tunes we're going to hear are Lee Morgan compositions and one very beautiful standard, which was written by Frank Sinatra and a couple of other people. So the Lee Morgan compositions, we, we're going to hear two right off the top. The first one is called "Terrible T," dedicated to somebody named T, whoever that is. Um, that's Lee's first composition. Second composition is his nick, one of his nicknames. He had a few of them, uh, but um, a lot of his close buddies called him Mogi, and that is the name of the second tune, Mogi. And then we hear this standard, which was written by Frank Sinatra and some other people, beautiful tune called I'm a Fool to Want You, and um, showing off Lee Morgan's Ballot Chops. And the final tune is another Lee Morgan original. It's a tune I like very much. It's called Best. So here then, four tunes from this uh, recording session for VJ Records, and we begin with terrible tea. Lee Morgan. Thank mm-hmm. you. We heard four tunes, all alternate takes from this uh, wonderful session that produced an album called Here's Lee Morgan. And uh, the reason I played the alternate takes is that uh, they're, they're, they're all just as good as the original six master takes that were put out. I was... Uh, when I came upon these alternate takes many years ago, I, I listened to them and I said, they're just as just as good as the master takes, which shows the consistency of um, these musicians. And of course, uh, this was one of Lee Morgan's um, first albums for this brand new label, as I mentioned uh, in the uh, uh, opening preamble. Um, VJ Records, which was out of New York, um, actually out of Chicago, even though this session was recorded in New York. VJ uh, Records um, were an R&B label, and uh, they had a jazz division for a few years and uh, signed a number of very prominent musicians, Lee Morgan being one of them, Wayne Shorter being another, Frank Strozier being another, Eddie Harris— And various, and um, they put out a number of just great recordings. Um, Many of them are hard to find now, but uh, these VJ recordings are great. And uh, they were all done at uh, a very fine recording studio in New York, Bell Sound. Anyway, this was recorded um, in early February of 1960 and one of Lee Morgan's finest albums, and it's called Here's Lee Morgan. And, of course, he was fully mature by this time. He's still he's only 21 years old, you know, which was absolutely amazing. Um, Lee is, uh, was on trumpet, of course, with uh, Clifford Jordan from Chicago on tenor saxophone and, of course, the magnificent Wynton Kelly on piano, Paul Chambers on bass, and Lee's boss of the time, because he was uh, a jazz messenger, Art Blakey on drums in a sideman role. This date not only brought out Lee's playing, but his compositional abilities. And he wrote three of these, these tunes. Um, the first two, the first one was called Terrible T," and the second tune was uh, his nickname, or one of his nicknames. "Mogi." was the second tune. The third tune was a standard that was written actually by Frank Sinatra um, after uh, (laughs) one of his ladies left him, Uh, and that was Ava Gardner. Frank Sinatra was uh, always in love with her, and he he, uh, penned this tune called I'm a Fool to Want You uh, with a couple of other people, and uh, Lee did a beautiful version of that tune. Uh, And the final tune was a very neat kind of a composition. I've always liked it with Art Blakey playing some nice brushes on there, and uh, that tune, the final tune, was called "Bess." So this showed Lee Morgan's compositional abilities. And if you haven't guessed it by now, we're paying tribute to the late, great and sadly ill-fated trumpeter, Lee Morgan. And um, in his short life, he accomplished so much, recorded with so many people. And um, you know, he it, it's amazing. Um, he met his death uh, at the hands of his partner. Um, that's a long, that's a, a long story, but he was shot and, and killed on February 19, 1972. He was only 33, and, uh, of course, uh, an amazing career in jazz music. And we are featuring and paying tribute to Lee Morgan because today would be his birthday. He was born in Philadelphia, the youngest of four children, born July 10th, 1938. And we're going to come back with Lee Morgan's biggest hit and probably his most famous tune. And we'll tell you about that in just a moment, right after a couple of important messages. Once again, I'd like to tell you that you are listening to CITR-FM 101.9 or on your computer, or iPhone, or however you want to do it, www.citr.ca. And this is The Jazz Show, and my name's Gavin Walker. I will be right back in one momento.
0: Jericho Beach Park comes alive with the 40th Annual Vancouver Folk Music Festival over 65 acts from 20 countries in one spectacular beachfront setting. This year, see Billy Bragg and Joe Henry, Bahamas, Congo's Mavunguana star, the Bare Naked Ladies, The Bell Game, Kathleen Edwards, and the long-awaited return of women's music pioneer Farron with her all-star band. Come experience a treasure of global music and culture at the 40th Annual Vancouver Folk Music Festival from July 13th to 16th at Jericho Beach Park. Get your tickets today at thefestival.bc.ca I'm going home To understand more about fashion, we asked CITR student executive and fashion expert, Jonathan Q, what fashion means to him. Like It's just aesthetically something that's so ostentatious. Typically, typically. I mean, because of course, I mean, uh, it's also, you know, I mean, uh, when, when you say fashion, I think people are talking explicitly about uh, consumerism as opposed to someone who buys, like, uh, like yeah. you know. say you If you really want to know more about fashion, I mean, come on down to CITR in the Student Union Building of UBC and pick up some of our merchandise à la mode, so musée me, is... t-shirts, sweatshirts, socks. And coffee mugs. But it's also very aesthetically gripping. To keep you styling in support of the station you love. Isn't that right, Jonathan? Well, actually, is it? Because, I mean, you know, I was going to say because of the cultural vacuum that we exist within. But then, you know, uh, really, fashion today is kind of derived from the European idea of couture. And that's been around for centuries. You're listening to CITR 101.9. Broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional unceded Coast Salish territory of the Hunkaminam speaking Musqueam people.
1: We're gonna return now to Lee Morgan in the in 1961. In, I guess, the early summer of 1961, um, Lee Morgan was causing a lot of problems. Uh, he was uh, severely addicted to heavy drugs, and the drugs seemed to have taken over this young man. Um, many people can sort of function normally uh, using drugs, and Lee Morgan was not one of those people and it it completely uh, it seemed to completely dominate his personality and um everything else and he was becoming a problem in the jazz messengers as much as art blakey loved lee morgan he he really loved lee morgan like a son uh he was becoming a problem um not showing up for gigs um not playing particularly well at times um, all this kind of stuff and uh, Art Blakey had to make the heartbreaking decision to to fire Lee Morgan and um, strangely enough Lee was part of Blakey's favorite edition of the Jazz Messengers. It really hurt him to do that but he did and um, his pianist as well Bobby Timmons was having some of the same problems and Blakey decided well you know <laughs> i I just can't do this anymore. So Timmons left, and Lee Morgan left. And um, Lee Morgan was replaced by Freddie Hubbard, and Bobby Timmons was replaced by Cedar Walton. Lee Morgan fell into the real pit of, uh, of drug addiction in 1962. He um, made one recording that year. That was it. Um, he did um, uh, this. Later on in the year, he, he showed up on a... Uh, on a broadcast recording, which was never officially issued. It's actually, he actually sounded really good. Um, but he was, um, he had sold all of his wonderful clothes that he bought, because he was a really sharp dresser, he even sold his shoes. And he was virtually a street person, uh, reduced to uh, to all of that. He didn't own any of his instruments. as uh, He sold his trumpets, everything was sold for money for drugs, and he really fell into that, that deep pit. Somehow, in, in 1963, he was able to, to, to pull himself out of there uh, with the help of uh, some people, uh, encouraged him and helped him along, people like Jimmy Heath, um, who was from Philadelphia, uh, and other people. And, and Lee Morgan um, started recording again, and was signed, reluctantly signed <laughs> to Blue Note Records by Alfred Lyon. Um, and Lee's first album was called "The Sidewinder." Interestingly enough, they recorded all of the tunes these are all Lee Morgan compositions on this tune on this album. The Sidewinder wasn't even recorded yet. Um, they had enough tunes to almost make an album. And Alfred Lyon, the Blue Note producer, said, um, do you have one more? And and Morgan said, no, uh, that's it. Uh, for now, we can jam on a tune or something. And, and Alfred Lyon said, no, 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 we don't do that on Blue Note, as you know. Um, if, if you can come up with something, Lee Morgan says, give me half an hour, and Lee disappeared into, into one of the uh, quiet rooms of the recording studio while the other musicians sat around and waited, and Lee Morgan finally emerged <laughs> with this uh, uh, tune, and it became Blue Note's biggest hit and Lee Morgan's biggest hit, and this was the last tune recorded on, on this session. And it was called The Sidewinder. And it really set the standard for Blue Note Records for the next uh, several years because uh, a kind of a, um, all Blue Note Records were all always open with kind of a funky, uh, accessible number. Um, and then, of course, all the other stuff on the albums. It, set, it kind of set a pattern for Blue Note Records. But The Sidewinder was a huge hit. Lee Morgan. And and interestingly enough it was it was an it was really an afterthought, but it was a necessary afterthought because they needed one more tune to complete this album. So we're going to hear the Sidewinder and we're going to hear the band that recorded the original version of the Sidewinder December 21st, a few days before Christmas, 1963. Lee Morgan on trumpet the revitalized Lee Morgan, Joe Henderson on tenor saxophone, Barry Harris on piano, Bob Crenshaw on bass, and Billy Higgins on drums. We're going to hear the Sidewinder and uh, another composition from this album called Totem Pole. And here we go. The Sidewinder was really Lee Morgan's biggest hit and best-known tune. So sit back and enjoy it. Here we go. Bye. We heard two tracks from one of Lee Morgan's most famous albums, of course, The Sidewinder. And that featured Lee in incredible company, Joe Henderson on tenor saxophone, Barry Harris on piano, Bob Crenshaw on bass, and Billy Higgins on drums, all recorded December 21, 1963. And uh, this album demonstrated that Lee Morgan was back, And uh, he had uh, rescued himself from uh, uh, total oblivion and obscurity and everything else and was back in force and uh, was uh, ready to rejoin the major artists of the jazz community. So we heard The Sidewinder, the first tune, the title track, which became a huge hit for Lee Morgan, and a huge hit for Blue Note Records as well. This album sold um, probably better than uh, most of them, most Blue Note Records. And uh, the second tune was called Totem Pole, another intriguing original by Lee Morgan. Both of these were, of course, Morgan compositions. And we are playing um, a birthday tribute to this great trumpeter who was born today, July 10th. We're going to move now to a session recorded in 1966. Lee Morgan featured with the uh, Oliver Nelson big band. And this is quite, uh, we're going to hear two tunes, both compositions by Lee Morgan, but arranged by the great Oliver Nelson, who conducted the orchestra So there's a whole bunch of people in here. Um, It's basically a um, brass-dominated orchestra. um, Lee Morgan and Ernie Royal are playing the trumpets. Of course, Lee is the featured soloist, so um, Tommy McIntosh is playing trombone, Jimmy Buffington on French horn, Don Butterfield on tuba, uh, and then the saxophone section, Phil Woods on alto saxophone, Wayne Shorter on tenor saxophone, Danny Bank on baritone saxophone, and McCoy Tyner at the piano, Bob Cranshaw on bass, and the fabulous Philly Joe Jones on drums, who is just killing on these two tracks. So we're going to hear um, two original compositions by Lee Morgan arranged by Oliver Nelson. And the first one is called Filet of Soul. And the second one is entitled Zambia. So, here then, from 1966, the great Lee Morgan and the big band of Oliver Nelson. <laughs> I have to admit that I called the tunes wrong when I announced uh, this, um, the selections I was going to play um, at first. So I'll just correct that and tell you the two tunes we heard were both Lee Morgan compositions. And the first one was called Need Eye, and the second one was called Filet of Soul. And a big band conducted by Oliver Nelson with a whole bunch of people in there. Um, But we did hear solos by Wayne Shorter on tenor saxophone, McCoy Tyner at the piano, and, of course, Lee Morgan on trumpet. And uh, both of his compositions arranged for this larger group by Oliver Nelson. On bass, Bob Cranshaw, And, of course, on drums, the powerful and amazing Philly Joe Jones. And, of course, all the other people in the band Tubas, French horns, flutes, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. All right, we're going to move back to a small group for the next selection. This is another Lee Morgan composition. This has kind of a funky Latin feel, and it's reminiscent of some of the the feels that uh, Eddie Harris got, gets into, or got into. Uh, when he was recording quite prolifically. This is a small band. This is from 1968. And this features Lee Morgan on trumpet, Benny Maupin on tenor saxophone, Cedar Walton on piano, Reggie Workman on bass, and Billy Higgins on drums. And this is the title track from a Blue Note album that Lee did uh, entitled Caramba. And that's the name of the tune. That's what we're going to hear. So enjoy this one as we continue our tribute to the great, late master of the trumpet and also wonderful composer, Lee Morgan. (laughs) That one is the title track from an album called "Karamba." and uh, that was recorded in uh, May of 1968. Lee Morgan, gentlemen were paying a lengthy tribute to um, celebrating his birthday anniversary, which was July 10th, 1938. And of course it's now July 11th, but we'll still celebrate it. Uh, to the end of the show. We have one more number to play for you. But uh, on Caramba, we heard Lee, of course, on trumpet, and he composed the tune, Benny Maupin on tenor saxophone, Cedar Walton on piano, Reggie Workman on bass, and Billy Higgins on drums, Caramba, from a Blue Note album of the same title. The final session, the last session that Lee Morgan recorded under his own name, was with his working band uh, augmented by a couple of musicians. And it was all recorded September 18th, 1971. And we are going to hear Lee Morgan on trumpet, Gratian Moncourt on trombone, Bobby Humphrey on flute, and a regular member of Lee Morgan's uh, band, Billy Harper, the great Billy Harper on tenor saxophone, and this is his tune as well. Harold Mayburn is on piano, and there are two bass players. Jimmy Merritt is playing electric bass, and Reggie Workman, once again, is playing uh, acoustic bass, and Freddie Waits is playing drums. And all of this, uh, this was kind of pointed at a, a bit of a new direction in Lee Morgan's music, and we don't know where he would have taken this concept that uh, you're going to hear because, um, well, as we all know, he, uh, he died uh, September 19, 1972, and uh, he, had never, he never recorded under his own name again. Uh, Interestingly enough, we did hear him on the jazz feature uh, last week um, where we heard uh, an album called Intensity, and that was led by organist Charles Irland. We played that album in its entirety, and that was actually uh, Lee's last recording session. But He was a sideman, and that was two days before his untimely demise. But these were his last recordings under his own name. The Last Session, as it is known as. This is a tune by saxophonist Billy Harper, and it's called The Croquet Ballet. Lee Morgan and Company. That was a fascinating piece of music written by tenor saxophone was Billy Harper. And it was entitled Croquet Ballet. And of course, this from Lee Morgan's last recording session under his own name, done uh, in New Jersey, September 18th, 1971, with uh, an expanded version of his working band. And we heard Lee, of course, on trumpet, with uh, Gracian Moncourt on trombone added to the band, as well as Bobby Humphrey on flute, and then regular members of the band. uh, Billy Harper, the composer on tenor saxophone, uh, Harold Mayburn on piano, and Jimmy Merritt on electric bass, and Reggie Workman on acoustic bass, and Freddie Waits, the late Freddie Waits on drums, croquet ballet. Our lengthy tribute this evening um, to Edward Lee Morgan, one of the foremost trumpet players in jazz music and a musician who, although um, taken from us at a very young age, um, has made an impression on just about every trumpet player pick up the horn, and has influenced uh, so many people um, in music, and uh, just has become, I think, even uh, since his passing, he has become even more appreciated for uh, the quality of his music, the consistency, and um, the amazing recordings that he uh, appeared on, not only as as a leader, but so many recordings as a sideman as well with uh, so many great people. So that was our tribute this evening to Lee Morgan. And we hope you enjoyed uh, the music that we played. We uh, restricted ourselves this evening to not sideman performances, but to performances by Lee Morgan as a band leader on uh, albums stretching from 1956, to his final session, which we just heard recorded in 1971. All right. We'd like to thank you very much for listening on behalf of The Jazz Show and myself, Gavin Walker, and, of course, radio station CITR 101.9 on your FM dial or on your computer, www.citr.ca. And we shall return next week, next Monday, starting at 9 p.m. and carrying on until, as we usually do, after midnight, well after midnight. So do take care, enjoy yourselves, enjoy the weather, and um, be careful. Bye-bye for now. We'll see you next week.